Please open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 and verse 11. At times, I like to speak to what we do in worship and why we do what we do. So while you're turning in there, I'll take a few seconds to say this. Our prayers sometimes can, if you haven't grown up in this tradition, when we read them, can seem less than meaningful. Maybe that's your experience. You've not been in a church where we've read prayers together or read things together. But this is an opportunity for us to participate corporately, saying the same things together as one body. In the same way, one of the reasons why I sometimes read prayers is not because I don't like to pray or because I forget all those things, and I do forget, I say mix things, mix words up and so forth. But what I find in my prayer, and I don't know if you find this in your own prayer life, is sometimes my words feel repetitive. I say the same phrases and ideas. I have the same expressions based on what I've been reading or what I've been studying or just my own experience. And so at times I go and I look at how other people have prayed. I read other prayers, and that's one of the reasons why I incorporate prayers that I sometimes read, because it's fresh language. Things that are true, things that we would all agree with and pray together with one voice, but words that help us reflect maybe a little more deeply and more intently in what we're saying to God. So I hope that's helpful to you. Look with me, if you will, in Revelation 19 and verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from it. Lord, help us. We we can't understand this on our own. Help us to see, to know, to understand. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to us this morning through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
Well, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've seen the parallel structures of the signs and the seals and the bowls, and so we've seen the pattern of the second coming. And we've seen the second coming kind of alluded to or mentioned very briefly in the second of each. In chapter 14, we saw it briefly talked about there. Here, what we have in chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, is an expanded view of the second coming of Christ. When we look at the seals, bowls, and trumpets, we kind of begin to expect what's coming. With the sixth of each, the tendency is to focus on the judgment that precedes the second coming, and then the seventh of each is that final, it's the end. And we see everything from the silence of heaven to other elements that describe the end. But as we read it and as we looked at it, we noticed an increasing momentum. We talked about this. And the momentum moves in such a way that as we get to the sixth and seventh in each, it appears that they're not... They almost happen either just right after each other or it almost appear like they're happening at the same time. This picture of the return of Christ, as you noticed from the reading, is both fearsome and glorious. It is a horror to those who have opposed him, and it is a great relief and a great joy for those who have put their trust in Christ. Yet in this description, we see things that are described that we understand this is something that is a forward-looking, yet there are some things in this description that sound as if they're already happening, things that we can already see taking place in our own time. So how are we to understand this? Some understand the passage describing the current age in which Christ reigns through his church to conquer his enemies through the proliferation of the gospel, that we, in a sense, are in the last battle. Others understand this passage to to describe a literal end-time battle in which the body count is beyond measure and birds literally eat the corpses. And there are a variety of views in between, as you might imagine. One of the things uh, with the book of Revelation is that you rarely find someone that you can put in a specific category. And this is true whether you read commentaries and other scholarly works or you just talk to somebody and you ask them their views. Uh, And that's because there's a lot here that we struggle to understand. So what are we to keep in mind as we move through the book of Revelation? Well, you already know what the first thing I'm going to say is because I've lost count how many times I've said it, uh, but I'm going to say it again. And that is apocalyptic literature uses symbols to reveal actual things that are to happen. Apocalyptic literature uses symbols to reveal things that are actually, that will actually happen. So this is an allegory. You might think of Pilgrim's Progress. That's an allegory where it takes, uh, it's a fantasy, an imaginary story that describes things that relate to things that are true and teach us about things that are true, but it's not actually happened. I mean, there are things that we can relate to and say, my life was like Pilgrim's Progress at this point. Revelation is speaking to things that are actually or will actually happen, and it uses symbolism to do so. What what am I getting at? Well, in this passage, a robe of fine linen, bright and pure, symbolizes purity, symbolizes the atonement that we've received. It even points to the priestly role of the person wearing it. And it could also represent a literal robe or it may represent something that John can only think of as a robe to describe it, something far beyond description. So what do we need to focus on? Not so much the robe, but what the robe points to. 
What is John trying to teach us? Because when it happens, we're going to be clothed in this, whatever it is, or this is teaching us about how we're clothed in the atonement of Christ, and it won't really matter if we got it right in our own imagination. And let's just be honest with ourselves about our imaginations. They're puny. (laughs) It is. I mean, even the ones of the greatest, we're we're going to discover this is greater than we could ever imagine. Going on, a white horse represents victory and righteousness. It could portray a literal horse. Or it could portray Jesus coming back, appearing on something that John could only describe as a horse. Or John in this vision is shown Jesus on a horse to instruct us of how Jesus is going to return, not humble and riding on a donkey, but victorious riding on a regal steed, And that is what we need to understand. Either way, the the, the intended meaning is that Christ returns as victor. He is not defeated. A crown represents royalty, reigning power. It could be pointing to a literal crown. But either way, the intended meaning is that Christ will return as the revealed sovereign over all. We know that he's reigning and he is sovereign now, but that is many people are blinded to that. When he returns... Every eye will see, every one will know, and will even recognize, confess, bow the knee. That is not seen right now. Many people don't know, they don't believe, they refuse to understand, they reject the claims of Christ. In the end, what these symbols represent is more important as to whether they are literally fulfilled or not. We are fully cleansed by the atoning work of Christ and will be presented pure before the Father whether we actually wear a linen robe or it looks like a linen robe or we have something else on. You understand the significance here, right? The importance is the the, the image of the atonement that we are presented pure before him. In the same way, Jesus will return his victory in victory as the triumphant king whether he appears on a literal horse or not. Jesus will reign as the risen lamb who triumphed whether he wears a literal crown or not. And so let's focus our attention on what the book of Revelation reveals about what is and what will be rather than simply fixing our minds on appearances. I'm saying this for two reasons. One, many of us have been taught to kind of force a literal understanding on what is apocalyptic literature something that is using symbols that wasn't intended, uh, just as we'd see in the book of Daniel or other apocalyptic literature. So some of this is corrective in the way that we've been taught. But it's also kind of just, I think, our wiring. When we read things that we think in more literal terms, that's kind of how our imagination works. We think in terms of what it looks like in our own mind, and we don't always see the meaning. I refer back to the Chronicles of Narnia all the time. I should probably expand my reading beyond that. But that's such a, an endearing, I haven't read it in years, but it was endearing because I read it with my kids. And one of the things that happens with the Chronicles of Narnia is when you read it in third grade, or are supposed to read it in third grade, um, your understanding of it is really just about the adventure. But when you read it as a young adult, you start to get wow, there's a lot more behind this. And then as you get older and you read it, as you look at it, as you move through life, you realize that there's a lot more in the story than what you first perceived. So our minds go to the literal aspects. We have to remind ourselves what these things represent. So keep in mind, symbolic literature, or apocalyptic literature uses symbols to teach us things 
that will happen. Not allegory, but they are symbolic, meaning we don't know all the details, and that's okay. We know what they point to. Second, Jesus ushered in his kingdom with his first advent. We see this throughout his ministry. Uh, Jesus inaugurated his ministry in Matthew 4.17 with the statement, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Clayton quoted a different passage this morning, but the same sentiment of Jesus announcing that kingdom is near, a kingdom is at hand. Uh, so he's pronouncing the kingdom is at hand. He's ushering it in. He brought the kingdom with him, and yet he taught his disciples and us to pray what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So which is it? Did he bring the kingdom or is the kingdom to come? And the answer is yes. That's right. (laughs) Yes. He brought the kingdom. He initiated or inaugurated the kingdom. Is the kingdom fully realized? No. We still look through as through a veil or through a glass dimly. Uh, There are those because of sin. Even us as believers don't fully honor Christ as king. But the day is coming when he returns, when the kingdom will be fully realized. And this is what we're praying for and longing for. When sin is eradicated and Satan is vanquished, and no longer will we look through a glass dimly or through a veil, but we will know the kingdom in its fullness. Another thing to keep in mind is that the Israelites were looking for an earthly kingdom with an earthly king to give them autonomy, what every human wants deep down in their hearts. For them, it was around the Roman Empire. They wanted to be out from under the Roman Empire. They did not want to be under their rule. And we get that because we think in the same terms. But we have to remember that Jesus said, what of his kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And yet, that doesn't mean it's an imaginary kingdom or that it's an invisible kingdom even though we can't see it because we see the effects of the kingdom all the time. We see the effects of its reign and power through the gospel in the church. It has real impact. People's lives are changed. Our lives have been changed. There is evidence of the kingdom We see the word of God striking down those who stand in opposition to it by judging them in their very words and actions, whether they acknowledge that or recognize that or not. We in this life can be persecuted. We may even be imprisoned. And yet, what did Paul say to Timothy? The word of God cannot be bound. In fact, the word rules and reigns and going forth, and we see this described throughout the book of Acts. Acts 19.20, just one example. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The kingdom is real, but there's no castle. There's no earthly throne. There's no worldly power, no temporal military justice, or, or, or military force. But when Jesus returns... And when the veil is lifted, when sin is eradicated, when Satan is defeated ultimately, then we will see with our eyes and experience the full scope of the heavenly kingdom of Jesus. And folks, that's what we're looking forward to. That's what's being described here in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Now, I'm going to say this at the outset because it's already 15 after. We're going to spend the majority of time on the first Uh, six verses of this passage. 
So I don't want you to get distracted when we're still in the first six verses and we're, we're, it's, it's getting time to close. We're going to move more rapidly through the final five. And the reason for that is we've covered much of what we see in the final five verses because that is the great day of the Lord, the great battle, Armageddon, which we've already looked at. Now, there's some other detail in there. We'll touch on that, but I want us to focus mostly on these first six verses because these first six verses are the picture of Jesus. And folks, that's what we need. <laughs> That's what we need to see. That's what we need to have in our minds. And so look with me in verse 11. John begins, and we see this transitional phrase, then I looked and saw heaven opened. Uh, we recognize this phrase as a transition, either indicating a new vision or a new section in the vision, if you understand this as one whole vision, and this is just a new part. Either way, it's a transition. He is no longer looking on earth as he has been, seeing the judgment of Babylon. Now his eyes are directed to heaven. The first time this happened was in chapter 4. If you remember, John saw a door in heaven opened, and at that point he was invited to go in and to see the very throne room. But here the door is open not for John to enter through it, but for Jesus to come out of it to return to earth. And he sees Jesus appear on a white horse, which of course is an image of purity and holiness, but a white horse is also an image of victory, and it also implies judgment. So this is what is represented by the image that he sees. Now, Jesus' name is not used, Jesus, uh, in this passage. And yet, the other names that are used in the descriptions make it very clear. Uh, we don't have to work very hard to know that this is the Lamb of God. This is Jesus who is returning. And we see that especially in the first name given, the name Faithful and True. And if you remember back to the messages to the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor, to the church specifically at Laodicea in chapter 3, Jesus introduces himself as the faithful and true witness. And so this is pointing clearly to Christ. Jesus was faithful unto death. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And for even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is also the truth. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this here is a contrast. We, we, if you, I won't point to all of them, but I'm hoping you're seeing there's tons of contrast in this passage. I mean, we could think of just the, the gorging of the birds on the flesh, that image as a contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Uh, here we have a contrast of Jesus as the truth. And who is Satan? The father of lies. So we see these contrasts throughout that John uh, uses throughout the book of Revelation. Here's another one. There are also, uh, the, the, the one who is faithful and true is also said, in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is how Jesus is to return. In his first advent, Jesus came in righteousness to die for our sin, to make atonement, to bring peace. Ephesians 2.14, Paul is speaking of the hostility between Jew and Gentile, but he's speaking ultimately to a peace uh, that we're given with God uh, because we are at enmity with him. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility. So making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The peace that we are given in Christ it's not just between fellow man, but it's ultimately to God. It's actually from the peace with God that we can have peace with each other. He came to bring peace. And yet in his second advent, Jesus will come as judge. And he will complete the war. He will finish the war that was started. 
against all those who have opposed him. Paul was speaking to in the Areopagus uh, in Athens, as recorded in Acts, and he said the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This, of course, is Jesus. While the scene that we see in Revelation 19 is describing the second coming of Christ, there are a number of ways, though, that we see his current rule through the language used here uh, in our own day and time. And this gets into spiritual warfare, which is what we've been looking at in Sunday school. We see the reign and the rule of Christ through this spiritual battle. It's happening now, but he's coming one day to finish it, to put it to completion. Looking further at the description, John describes that his eyes appear like flames of fire. Of course, a symbolic image. What does it point to? Well, the all-seeing eyes of Jesus. The fact that nothing and no one can escape his gaze. No one can do anything in secret. Jesus said to his disciples, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Jesus comes as the all-seeing ones. On his head... John sees many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows of himself. You remember the pictures of the beasts who came in two different scenes, one with seven crowns, another with ten. Here, John says many, uh, it's beyond measure, beyond count, or he chooses not to give us the count. And the point, again, is a contrast to show us the absolute sovereignty Uh, that Jesus will rule over all. Yes, Jesus rules now, but when he returns, everything will submit to his rule. I hope you understand the distinction. Jesus is not hindered in any way. But when he comes and removes sin from the equation, and when he judges in righteousness, we will see clearly what his sovereign reign looks like. And in that return, there will be things that we understand that we do not understand right now says that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Many people have struggled with this, trying to figure out what it means. Uh, Some have found it problematic because several other names of Jesus are listed in this very passage and, of course, throughout the book of Revelation. But if you look closely, we see it's not the name, but a name. There is a name that no one knows but him. And I think this points to uh, at least... At least two different things. One, for us, it shows us the fact that there are many things that we don't know about him. He is the transcendent one. He is above all. He is beyond our comprehension. He is majestic and glorious. And when he comes in all of his glory, there will be things that we come to understand that we don't right now. And that's a good thing. When I say it's beyond our imagination, when I say it's going to be better than we can ever think, this is what I'm talking about. Of course, it won't hurt that sin will be removed as well, and we'll be able to comprehend a lot more. But there's also an idea here of how the world has understood Jesus, or I could say misunderstood Jesus. The world sees Jesus as insignificant. They use his name as a curse word, as an exclamation. They belittle and make fun. But when Jesus returns, everyone will see And everyone will know, because at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus is pictured in verse 13 with a robe that is dipped in blood. And there are two viewpoints on this. One, the blood is his own, uh, with which he atoned for our sin. 
And the other view is that the blood is that of his enemies because this is clearly a picture of him coming in judgment. Well, with any time that we have a, a, a disagreement, we need to go back because John is continually referencing the Old Testament. So what is the passage that he has in mind? Well, it's Isaiah 63. In fact, he echoes Isaiah 63 in this passage, in particular in verse 15. Let me read just a couple of verses from Isaiah 63. It's a conversation, so it kind of goes back and forth. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson, crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And the answer is, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The next question, why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? The answer, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparels. And so the blood stains in this Isaiah passage are clearly those of the enemy of God, or the enemies of God. And so this symbolic picture that's there, it's, it's given, it's even a little more grotesque. We don't have to really use our imaginations much to understand what his judgment will look like. It will be complete. It will be utter. It will be sure. And yet, while the blood is that of his enemies, and it's made clear by the context of the entire passage, particularly I mentioned verse 15, there is also room here to understand that the blood is also his own because he comes with the blood already on his robe. His blood, and this is what I want us to understand, his blood is the image of the judgment of the wrath of God upon our sin for which Jesus died so that we may be forgiven. His blood is the image of the wrath of God and the judgment against our sin so that we might be forgiven. The blood of those who refuse Jesus as Lord, who oppose him in their lives, will be required of them for their sin since they did not by faith trust in the shed blood of Christ. So the blood on his robe points to the wrath of God against sin, which Jesus atoned for in his death, and the blood points to the wrath of God against sin, which he will require of those who have rejected him. It can point to both. His name, the Word of God, points us not just to the revelation of God to man in the person of Jesus, but the manner in which he will judge. And this may be the most perplexing thing through the entire passage. Because when we read of this, our minds go to literal things, almost like Narnia. You know, we imagine this like real battle. And yet, what is the battle described like in verse 15? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Is it that Jesus will literally show up in bodily form, open his mouth, and a sword will come out and defeat all the nations of the world? There are those who may hold that view. I don't. I think this is clearly symbolic. I, I think it's strange to think that Jesus will come back as something we would see in a superhero movie and use his tongue to kill everyone who has opposed him. I think it is clearly symbolic of how he defeats those who have opposed him. Notice that this and the rod of iron, which it's arguable that that's even a weapon, although it says he will rule with a rod of iron, This, other than the rod of iron, is the only weapon mentioned in the entire battle scene. The rod of iron, of course, points to a shepherding role, alludes to Psalm 2, which we've looked at a number of times. But this is the only weapon. And this battle is the great day of the Lord. This is Armageddon. And Jesus comes on the scene, 
and he fights and he defeats with a sword proceeding from his mouth that is an image of his word. Now we know from Scripture, we looked at it this morning in Sunday school, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So we see this sword image used throughout Scripture. But he will judge and wage war with his word. What will it look like? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Is there a real battle coming? Yes, I believe there's a real battle. What it will look like, I don't know. But our puny imaginations, I guarantee you, will fall short every time if we force this to be a literal explanation of what is coming. It is literal in the sense that there is a great battle coming. I do believe we see things in Revelation ramping up toward the end and there will be this great battle. What it will look like, though, I think we can't be as definitive. With Jesus in his return comes an army on horses dressed in the same clothing as we have seen described of the redeemed in a number of places in the book of Revelation. This is in verse 14. And we might assume this is an angel army, but it's because the clothing is that of the redeemed that I would say this at least includes the saints with the angels. It may be both and, but it would at least include the saints who come with them. And in verse 15 it states, He, meaning Jesus, will tread the winepress, meaning He is the one who is coming to conquer. We saw this parallel description in chapter 17, verse 14, showing that He alone is the victor. They, meaning the beasts and the kings and the rulers of this world, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. How then are we pictured in both of those passages? with swords and spears or with machine guns and tanks or flying fighter jets or whatever the the battle armament that you can imagine? No. Jesus alone is the conqueror. Jesus alone is the victor. He's the fighter. And we are pictured simply as called, chosen, and faithful. In other words, we're safe. We are all pictured as safe in this battle. On his robe and thigh, another name is ascribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. The same title we just read in chapter 17, verse 14. This is what originally came from Daniel 4 is the first time that we see it. And if you remember in Daniel the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who stood in pride and boasted in arrogance over the glory of Babylon, and God judged him. And then we saw as Babylon is describing the worldview of our own age in which we live, and those who, who, who ascribe to this, that will one day be judged in the same way for the same reasons of this self-pride. The other thing that this points to in the name of Jesus is clearly his deity. If that's something that you ever wrestle with, read the book of Revelation in its entirety and you will see clearly that Jesus is God. Now looking at the last section very quickly, verses 17 to 21, we see the last battle. This is a battle that we've already seen. Uh, It's described here in gruesome detail. But again, is this describing literal birds or is this symbolic of what will happen? We see it's the beast. He comes with the kings of the earth. They're coming to make war against the one who is on the horse and against his army. But from the very beginning, their destiny is already spelled out. Why? Because the birds are called in to eat their flesh before the battle begins. It is a description, a symbolic description, I would argue, that they have already been defeated. And have they already been defeated? Satan, the beast, the false prophet, 
and their followers? Yes, they have already been defeated by what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Their destiny is spelled out in verse 18. Here again, symbolic images portray real things. And that means there is a final battle coming, but what it looks like, we have to be careful of how um, uh, firm we stand on the particulars. Jesus is said to be the lone warrior. We know that much. Jesus is said to fight with his word. That's repeated more than once. Look again in verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And if you think I'm twisting the book of Revelation, let me read to you from Paul in 2 Thessalonians, speaking of the Antichrist. He calls him there the lawless one. In this passage, he's called the beast. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Does that sound like the same way he's going to fight the end battle in Revelation 19? Yes. By the breath of his mouth. So no matter how the battle is fought, no matter what the particulars of the warring looks like, the outcome is what is important for us to understand and to to kind of stick our claws into. It will be final and decisive. Jesus alone will fight and our security will not be at risk. The victory has already been declared. There is more to come. We see here the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet, captured, judged, thrown into the lake of fire. We knew that was coming. It's kind of glad, you know, it makes us glad to see it. You know, the, the judgment, just like uh, in, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Western, you know, how many Western movies were made where the, the guy comes in on the, the white horse and, you know, he takes over the, the gang that has infested the town and is, is oppressing the people. And when they are finally eradicated and run out of town, there's a sense of, yes, you know, victory at the end of the movie. Or plug in whatever favorite genre that you have there. And this is what we see. And Satan is not yet thrown into the lake of fire, but that's coming shortly in the next chapter. We're going to get there in a couple weeks where he meets the same demise. But here, in this last battle, known as Armageddon, we see it is fought and ended Interestingly enough, by the same power that brought everything into existence. The Word of God. Everything that exists, from nothing, He spoke into existence. And He will finish the judgment on all who have opposed Him by that same great power, His Word. Jesus is coming back. And He is, going, he is doing so to judge those who have mocked Him and mocked His grace and mocked his mercy. He's coming back to bring us who have trusted him safely home. So the time to respond to his gracious gift of forgiveness is now, for it will be too late once he returns or once we die. There are no second chances. There is not, not, we, we have no excuse. There is no bargaining with God. We have sinned and fallen short of his glory, and all that we can do is fall on his mercy trusting in the finished work of Jesus that we might be forgiven of our sins. Today is the day of salvation. For you who are trusting in Christ, here is another reminder of the hope that we have. And this is, again, this is not some fantasy story. This is not some far-off hope. This speaks to the very mess that is in your face right now. 
or that's going to hit you when you walk out the door that you're going to be reminded of, that you're facing right now in this moment or what's facing you around the corner coming up on Monday morning. This is what gives us hope. Our lives should not be filled with fear and anxiety about what tomorrow holds. We should not allow ourselves to become distracted or overcome with concern about how we will make it if this happens or if that happens. We should not put our hope in our pursuits, in our power, our wisdom, or in our securities. Instead, we should fix our eyes on the author of our faith and know that He is standing ready to return. The one who came in humility to save us from our helpless estate is coming soon as the glorious and reigning King. Our King who entered Jerusalem humbly on the colt of a donkey will return one day in power riding a regal horse. Our King who was spit upon and called a liar as He died on the cross will this day be revealed as faithful and true. Our King who came to save, who spoke peace over the storm on the lake in Galilee will return to judge and to make war. Our King who wept over His people as He looked over Jerusalem will return with fire in His eyes to hold to account all who have rejected Him. Our King whose head was crowned with thorns and humiliation at His death will return with countless diadems on His head demonstrating His utmost worth, honor, and glory. Our King whose name has been taken in vain and used to exclaim curses a name that has been made fun of, a name that has been considered insignificant, He will one day reveal to all just what His name is and all that it means. The Word of God, the Lamb, Emmanuel, our Redeemer, Lord of Lords, and King of Kings. Sin's debt, that fearful burden, let not your soul distress. Your guilt the Lord will pardon and cover by His grace. He comes for men procuring the peace of sin forgiven, for all God's sons securing their heritage in heaven. Let's pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see the great hope that is ours in Christ, because there are so many things that distract and weigh us down. We hear these words We know them to be true and we're encouraged in this moment. But Lord, we're going to walk out of here. And reality is going to hit us if not this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow morning. It's eventually going to come knocking. The reality that we live in a fallen world. The reality that we are sinners and we don't have the strength to to stand. Lord, we need your power to stand. Would you work and move in our hearts so that when we are slapped in the face with the reality of the fallen world, the reality of our own sin, the reality of this war in which we are enraged, in which Satan comes to try and destroy, Lord, would you strengthen us to stand? Strengthen us with the truth. Lord, you are the truth. Give us your strength. Empower us to know with confidence what our future is so that we don't become despondent, so that we don't fret with worry, so that we don't make foolish decisions and store up treasures on earth, but instead store up treasures that are in heaven. Lord, give us eyes to see the kingdom that we cannot see. 
except by faith. So that when we are able to see it, Lord, we will rejoice in the glory of knowing our great Savior face to face. Lord, we long for that day and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name, amen.